Here we go. We are back. This is the Indian X-Men, Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie. This is the first book that we have read by this author. It's on the list of 100 greatest books of all time. This is number 67 on that list. And I will put the entire list on the Substack. I know I, I posted a partial list that was just the books that we've covered so far. So I'll put an entire list on the Substack so you can see everything that we've seen so far and everything that we will see going forward. But Midnight's Children, it was published in 1981. The book itself is really about India's transition from British colonial rule to independence. It's written in a magical realism style. Now, I know that at some point we talked about 100 Years of Solitude, which is what stands out the most to me when I think about the magical realism style and his short stories. Something about a, a leaf. We read it at some point. It was about <laughs> it had a leaf in the title, I think. But so this was magical realism in India. It sold a million copies in the UK. It won the Booker Prize, you know, back when book prizes actually meant something. And it even won the Booker of Booker Prizes, so like the Achievement Award. So it was a big deal. It inspired many magical realist works in India. It wasn't the first magical realism book in general. But in India, there were a lot of people who were inspired by this book. And in 1984, the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi brought an action against the book in the British courts, claiming to have been defamed by a single sentence in the book. It was in the penultimate paragraph of chapter 28, and in the paragraph, her son Sanjay Gandhi was said to have a hold over his mother, and it accused her of contributing to his father's death uh, through her neglect of the father. So the case was settled out of court when Rushdie, the author, agreed to remove the offending sentence. Now, this is actually a really in interesting instance of censorship, because... Quite obviously, Salman Rushdie has faced for the Satanic Verses pretty much the most egregious form of censorship and attempted censorship in history, in that he's been a target. There's been a price on his head for decades as a result of that. So this, the, a request to remove a sentence, uh, you know, just a, a, a formal legal action to remove a sentence in the book, must have seemed like such a gentle response that maybe it was more appealing. But also, much of the book has Rushdie being very critical of Indira Gandhi and her son and saying all sorts of horrible things about them that are, I mean, true, but still there are lots of things that are bad about those, those characters. And yet those aren't the things that they're worried about. It was just this particular framing of things that they didn't want in the book. So you can't really fault the guy for accepting this version of censorship just in general. So as always, and uh, I know it's it's been a little slow going. There have been some other projects I've been working on, but uh, this has been a little slow going recently. But we will get through all 100 of these books, and we will have some more nonfiction stuff coming up. Because there are so many important things going on in the world, and we're trying to understand it all. And have the appropriate response, and formulate the appropriate strategy to push things forward notwithstanding everything else that's going on. So we're going to go through the content of this book. It's going to be a short summation of this content. I've only read this book once, so I don't want to offend the author or anything by getting too many things wrong. You know, other books that I've read multiple times, it's easy to go through bit by bit of everything that happened in the book. But in this one, we're just going to give kind of a broad stroke. And it is a long book. There, there are many a page in this work. So we're going to go through the contents. I'll do a couple of quotes so we understand what the language is like in the book. And then we're going to do a critical analysis where we see how it's been kind of received. And then my critical analysis. And then talk about some big picture stuff going forward to wrap it into a wider understanding of where we are. We're going to see the king. 
So, the contents of this book. Salim Sinai was born at the exact moment that India became free. So it really sets up this dual destiny. So we understand that he's supposed to be representative in the things that happen around him and the thing, the people that he meets and all that is supposed to be representative of the fate of India. This is a big time for India that they get independence from the British and now they have to chart their own course going forward. But so Salim, he finds when he's born at the exact moment, and that's why it's called Midnight Children. There are a bunch of children born in the first hour after midnight when India was formed. And they all learn that they develop these special powers. So Salim, he learns that he has telepathy and a large nose. <laughs> and one thing also to keep in mind is that the tone of this thing, it has all these serious implications and it deals with all these serious topics, which we'll find out. But it also has a whole bunch of humor built into it. So you, you kind of have to roll with the tone when you're going through it. So, Salim learns that he has this telepathic ability. He can communicate with all of the 1,000 special children, the Midnight's children that were born within the first hour, who also have their own special powers. So what he tries to do with his telepathy is that he tries to assemble the conference of Midnight's children. He tries to bring them together and learn their powers. So there's one, interestingly, there's one that can change their sex at will. And this was published in the 1980s, early 1980s. So that would have been quite significant. And you just wonder how that would be treated now. But the whole point, the whole point of this is that it's supposed to represent the disparate cultural, linguistic, religious, and political traditions that now need to be reconciled under this new independent India. This is something that people don't necessarily understand, is that when you have something that's created out of nothing, you know, a new India that had been under British rule and been applying British rules and developing its culture under the aegis of the British, and now it has to do everything independently. There are so many things, especially in such a large country, there are so many disparate things that now have to reconcile with each other without some guiding, if tyrannical, force over it that's forcing them to. So that's what this book is about, is, is understanding how different people can be and how they have to suddenly come together to try to build something positive. So there are a lot of things that happen to Salim Sinai and his family and the other children. His family migrates and has to deal with myriad conflicts, you know, in different regions. And this is a way of understanding what's going on in India. Then we get into, I mean, explicit political commentary related to Indira Gandhi who was the Prime Minister. So Indira Gandhi claimed this emergency power at one point, became an authoritarian, and would detain, she would detain opposition leaders and restrict the press and gave this police power to local enforcers where they could issue curfews and detain people indefinitely, even without legitimate or any charges. So this became an authoritarian, and this is something that Rushdie wanted to comment on and criticize openly. And then Indira Gandhi had a son, Sanjay Gandhi, who engaged in all sorts of reprehensible acts when, in trying to enforce these rules and when they were acting in this authoritarian capacity. So there's like this one slum area where he cleansed the entire slum area and killed 150 people. There was also something like a forced sterilization of undesirables. And this is used by the author. Uh, he says that while this is applied to, in real life, you know, while this is applied in, in a given region to given people, in the book, it's applied to the children, the Midnight's children. So there are things that are done to them, like sterilization, that were done to real people, but it's, it's applied here. So by the time we get to the end of the book, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous. There are a whole bunch of things that go on. 
in this book, uh, you know, and again, it's magical realism, so you have to interpret what you think it means relative to the politics and the culture and what the author is saying about it and all those things. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you have the character who, uh, Salim Sinai, who is trampled underfoot and it, it seems to be representative of kind of India itself trying to move forward and trampling the best intentions of the Midnight's children. And over the course, you know, a lot of the Midnight's children are persecuted and killed and all these. So there are a tremendous number of things that happen in the book and like a lot of comedy and a lot of terrible things that happen to the characters. So so there's a lot going on here. Uh, to move on to the quotes from the book, this is how kind of the writing style is, if nobody's read Salman Rushdie by this point. Quote, Memory's truth because memory has its own special kind. It selects, eliminates, alters, exaggerates, minimizes, glorifies, and vilifies also. But in the end, it creates its own reality. It's heterogeneous but usually coherent version of events. And no sane human being ever trusts someone else's version more than his own. In another quote, Who, what am I? My answer. I am everyone, everything, whose being in the world affected was affected by mine. I am anything that happens after I've gone which would not have happened if I had not come. Nor am I particularly exceptional in this matter. Each I, every one of the now 600 million plus of us, contains a similar multitude. I repeat for the last time, to understand me, you'll have to swallow the world. So this book has massive ambitions when it's trying to depict something that's representative of an entire people, you know, the, the entire destiny and movement and history of India. It has a lot of things going on and a lot of interests and is trying to gel a narrative that would otherwise be very difficult to, to keep together. What is the analysis of this? What did critics think of this when it came out? What do people think of it now? Here's one critic from The Guardian. The Guardian critic says, But the narrative is so jammed with contradictions, digressions, deliberate false steps, and allegorical insinuations that it's impossible to do it justice in the space of a short blog. And also says, any book that takes its key references as Tristram Shandy, 1001 Nights, and the Quran is likely to present complexities and the wealth of detail from American, Indian, Middle Eastern, and European culture, history, and religion is overwhelming. Now, having said those two phrases from that, that critic, the critic is very positive on the book. <laughs> they like it very much. But one thing they point out that's very important here is that there are so many different cultures that are just kind of mixed together, including American culture, that is just added into this. And there's this reference to Tristram Shandy. I don't think we've read, or maybe we have read that. Uh, it's not a book that I, I particularly liked, but anybody who's read it knows that it's it's a sprawling, it's humorous, and it deals with this guy's life from birth, you know, straight through. But it has this kind of effect of being funny and undermining its own import a little bit, in that it it seems to imply at least some kind of absurdity to the whole the whole thing. So what does the New York Times say? And anybody who watched, I, I had a short that was a quote from Christopher Hitchens who talked about the New York Times. I hope everybody got to watch that. But that man, oh my gosh, one of the best. This is what the New York Times said at, at the time. Because of the threat they pose to the only true succession, the 581 surviving Midnight's children are sterilized and then treated to an even deadlier procedure. They are sporectomized, drained of hope. So this is uh, just a reference to something that's going on in the book. Like I said, the Midnight Children are sterilized for being kind of contra to Indira Gandhi's idea of the only true succession. And then another quote, of course there are a few false notes. There is a shorter, purer novel locked inside this shaggy monster. A different author might have teased it out. 
a different editor might have insisted upon it. I'm glad they didn't. And finally, petty household intrigues seem more momentous than the misaffairs of state. So this this particular author says that there is a, a cleaner, more pure novel inside this thing, but they were glad that there was so much to it. There's so much going on. And this is one of the things that we see in a lot of these kinds of books. You know, even in, in films, especially modern films, it's pretty easy to try to take on these very larger political issues and, you know, things that are going on that are countrywide or worldwide and, and make kind of big to-do out of those. In this, there are actually a lot of petty household intrigues, as is stated by the critic, that take up a lot of the book that it seems like they have the same importance as, you know, the bigger ones the tyrannical authoritarian oppression that's going on versus just kind of the baser things that happen in in a household. So what is my take my take on the book after having looked at these critics? I really think I would appreciate it a pure novel. It was kind of difficult to get through the whole thing. Now, this would have been published in 1981. There are far fewer distractions. It's a lot easier to sit down in the sun somewhere and just read a long book and get wrapped up in it. But that said, I did read A Hundred Years of Solitude, you know, just a year or two years ago or something like that, and it felt revelatory. It felt amazing, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading that. So on the scale, and this isn't meant to be especially derisive, but on uh, on the scale, if you have a spectrum, this one seems a little closer to a parlor trick as opposed to A Hundred Years of Solitude, which felt more solid. The concept is great for Midnight Children in the setup of it being representative of India and everything India has to go through now that it's independent. That's a great setup. It's a great concept. And there's greatness in it. It's occasionally tonally frivolous, and sometimes I got annoyed at how how frivolous it was with its subject matter, you know, with the jokes and the kind of weird things that happened and all that when it was something that was so serious. But I can't fault it too much for that. You know, it's a tone that it was going for, and a lot of the time it did work, and a lot of the time it works in other kinds of books and movies and all that. But you have some you have some goofy things happening, you know, like the very biblical-seeming, the children switch at birth, you know, one is well-to-do, one privileged, and the other is not. Salim and Shiva. And then you have the idea of characters being insinuated into historical events, like with the sterilization. So it's definitely, it's complex, there are a lot of things going on. Big picture-wise, you know, it is a question of what literature is and where it can go. It began early on with kind of heroics and the oral tradition, and the point was to give people a North Star to follow, to give people inclinations of what was good and what was bad, and what you should be and what you shouldn't be. When you have Odysseus and Achilles, and they're so strong and admired in the culture, and you see what they do and how they are and how brave they are and what they accomplish, and so you aspire to be those things. But then storytelling expanded into telling stories about the people who were ostracized. So the people who were falling through the cracks in society, who weren't at the top, who weren't didn't have this bright light shone upon them, they weren't Odysseus. They were just working in you know local shops or something like that. They were the beggar's hands that were early paintings, you know, from the great painters. It was it was those kinds of people that were getting their stories told now, that there was a richness to their stories. It wasn't just about having that admirable man that one should aspire to. It was about understanding kind of the ins and outs of what a human being is and the, the rich experiences that everybody can have. And then we have more modern experimental literature in this period where it's just it's playing with your perceptions and your ideas and what people are and what storytelling is and what writing is 
and that we have this advancement into other mediums of storytelling that kind of modify the way you can tell stories in in the print world. And you have people who are trying to tell stories in every way that they can think to tell stories. And uh, even stories that aren't stories. (laughs) Even things that are just farcical and don't make any sense. So all sorts of stuff now that you've run into when it comes to modern experimental literature. And now it seems like we're getting into an era of kind of cheerleader literature. So the point is to have a restatement of the things that are allegedly praiseworthy. So it's, it's a, in kind of a way, it's, it's come full circle except without the artistry. <laughs> so the point is that you're just cheerleading these, these ideas or uh, the types of people or the kinds of perspectives that are acceptable. And you just cheerlead those. There's this kind of dichotomy, and it's an oversimplification, obviously, uh, between praise and expectation. So there's a kind of literature that's written as just a means of praise. The The whole point is just to demonstrate th- that, look, you are the protagonist, the reader is the protagonist, you know, the author and the reader are both the protagonist, and you're great, and great things happen, and that's it. And historically, even when you had the heroics and the oral tradition, you would have a lot of complexity in those. You know, it wasn't just Odysseus or Achilles were amazing, everything worked out for them, and, and it was wonderful. Yes, you're good-looking, and you get all the women, and you win battles. There were complex things that were going on. Bad things happened to them that they have to deal with, and they have to overcome. And there's some ambiguity in, in fate, and what the gods want from you, and what's going to happen to you, even if you do everything right. But in more modern stuff, and this is obviously an oversimplification. I'm, I'm sure there are wonderful contemporary literary artists who are more complex than this. But it feels more like, and when you see the kinds of books that win awards now, it feels more like it's about just praise. It's just, uh, okay, say the right thing, say them in the right order, express the right ideas, and you get praised for that. As opposed to actually pushing the medium or having something complex or something ambiguous. It's just that, are you anti-colonial? <laughs> are you do you happen to have the proper identity uh, to be praised in this moment? And that's, that's what garners it. That's what makes, you know, good writing at this point, in quotes, of course. And then on the other side, there's this expectation. Expectation framing of literature is about, it's saying that we expect more from you. We expect you to do more. We expect you to understand more. We expect you to have a complexity and understand the complexity that's here so that you have a better understanding of the real world and characters in the real world. So in these, this kind of literature, you have complex characters and complex events and complex illusions and insinuations and allegories, all these things that you have to try to derive some meaning from that. And it's going to make you, and at the same time, it's going to make you more complex. It's going to give more dimension to you and what you understand and what you want and what you're interested in. So when you have that, that distinction, when you go one way versus the other one, that's going to have dire long-term effects on the way that your population, that your people, that your culture develops, that your culture understands itself and everybody else. So much of our dissent now can be attributed to the lack of complexity in our reading content, to the lowering complexity in it. Most of what we read now are are texts and emojis. And that's not to say that there's not some kind of a a postmodern value to having explored that aspect of the way that we communicate, to having seen, you know, in in bright yellow circles uh, the different emotions that can be expressed or the kind of restrictions that we have on being able to communicate and trying to communicate a little bit better in those media. But there, it undermines the, the threshold of complexity that we can express to each other. 
So that being the case, I'll take a million of these kinds of books that I have to trudge through and pay attention to and try to understand and read a few times to be able to get everything out of it. I will take that over, you know, the kind of trending participation trophy that we have nowadays when it comes to literature. So anyway, uh, that's what I wanted to say related to Midnight's Children. I hope you enjoyed it. And we will be... Oh my gosh, I'm so unbelievably excited about this. You have no idea. We will be reading next. The next book on the list, I am not kidding, is Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Now, I think it's a little low. On the li- not a little, it's really low. It kind of annoys me that it's li- this low on this list because I absolutely love this book. But that's the next one. That is the next one. So well, I'm actually, I'm going to do a lot of special things for this one. We're going to have some nonfiction stuff, uh, like I said before. It's been a little difficult because I think I've read so many nonfiction books that I absolutely love. So it's been difficult to kind of sit on a new nonfiction. Anyway, but that one's the fiction one that's coming up. It's Kafka's Metamorphosis. We're going to do some special stuff for that one, have a big episode for that one. But I think it was certainly worth it to read Midnight's Children. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to talk about it. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you on the next one. Thank you very much.